only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Rashi. I'm currently a rising junior at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm his co-host, Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl and the wearer of hashtag Jill's Pins. And today I'm wearing one because we'll be talking to Representative Swalwell about a number of subjects that I think show the need for passing, not passing, for implementing the already ratified Equal Rights Amendment. So I'm wearing my ERA pin. We are less than three months away from the 2022 midterms, and the stakes couldn't be higher. In the months between now and November, Democrats in Congress are doing all that they can to pass legislation that demonstrates that they can make lives better. Just recently, a bipartisan Congress, long hoped for by President Biden, passed historic gun legislation that, while it's far from perfect, is a step in the right direction. Democrats in Congress have passed the Women's Health Protection Act and Ensuring Women's Right to Reproductive Freedom Act, but it seemed doomed in the Senate. There's also continuing bipartisan efforts to lower the cost of prescription drugs. But are Democrats doing enough to motivate their base and young voters? What more will it take between now and November? We will discuss these and other pressing questions with our guest today. We'll also talk about the January 6th committee hearings and what the Department of Justice is doing or not doing. Um, our guest is Congressman Eric Swalwell, a Democrat from California. He's been a member of Congress since 2012 and currently serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the House Judiciary Committee, and the House Homeland Security Committee, which makes it very relevant to the Secret Service text that we'll talk about. He's also on Intelligence and Counterintelligence Subcommittee and chairs the Intelligence Modernization Readiness Subcommittee, which oversees the overall management of the intelligence community. Representative Swalwell is also the co-chair of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, which makes committee assignments and sets the Democratic Caucus's policy agenda and co-founded the bipartisan United Solutions Caucus to bring new members together. He served as one of the House impeachment managers during the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, my pleasure. So the January 6th committee hearings have been underway for more than a month, and there's been reporting that the committee may hearings past this week, um, which includes a primetime hearing. I want to first ask you, what are your main takeaways from what we've learned um, from the excellent work of uh, the January 6th hearing so far? It's clear more than ever that there's a mountain of evidence against Donald Trump and that all of the arrows from all of the evidence point to Donald Trump as being the individual who assembled the mob uh, over 
months before uh, the election and the insurrection in, in his claims about what would be a false outcome. And then after the election, that the outcome uh, was fraudulent. And then, of course, uh, in the weeks leading up to January 6th, inviting a crowd to Washington, promising it will be wild, learning uh, from people around him that there was going to be violence that day and still going to the ellipse, inciting and inflaming that mob and then aiming them at the Capitol with the false promise that he would go with them, which kind of gives you a permission space uh, yourself to go if you believe the president has uh, co-signed on uh, the proposition and then, of course, doing absolutely nothing uh, as officers uh, were beaten and bludgeoned and we came uh, this close uh, to having uh, our democracy uh, erased. So you served as um, a House impeachment manager during the second impeachment of Trump, and that, of course, related to the January 6th, uh, what happened on January 6th. Do you think if you had the evidence we've seen so far so far from the January 6th committee hearings um, during the second impeachment of former President Trump um, that enough senators would have voted guilty to convict him? You know, we came up, uh, you know, just about 10 or so votes short of getting a conviction and most importantly, uh, a permanent ban on ever running for public office. And we had no cooperative uh, witnesses. You know, we had reached out to Secret Service. We had reached out to witnesses around uh, the president. Uh, many books have uh, now detailed the lengths that we uh, went to to reach out to witnesses to get them to come in. And we were told essentially, see you in court. And we didn't have the benefit at that time of waiting months or years for courts uh, to decide you know, who could testify and who couldn't. So with the evidence we had, we still were able you know, to put forth the largest bipartisan vote that any impeachment proceeding of a president has ever uh, produced. Uh, but sadly, uh, we came up short and Donald Trump is still likely the next candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, the environment in this country has gotten worse, not better as far as uh, political violence. Uh, and that's why I really do believe that the most important uh, goal for the January 6th committee has to be that the plotters are still at large, that this is a crime that is in progress, not an autopsy of a crime that has already been committed. Yeah, the threat to democracy remains. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any guess as the OJ hasn't indicted former President Trump yet? Well, you know, Jill certainly knows this space uh, quite well. And, and I'll say as a former prosecutor, I know that every prosecutor, uh, whether you're prosecuting, you know, a driving under the influence case or a homicide or a, a serious money laundering case. Uh, most importantly, you recognize your obligation to only bring a case forward if you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, prosecutors are also extremely competitive because they know, you know, what's at stake. And so, I, you know, I, if I was prosecuting a DUI case, I did not want to lose because, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I, I brought it forward because I had the evidence. And so I, I did not want to you know, see a not guilty verdict come back. So you take people who are you know, legally and ethically required to only bring a case if they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, people who are very competitive and, and do not want to lose, and now the potential target you know, is the former president of the United States, you know, a Rubicon we've never crossed in our country, and you can imagine the amount of pressure uh, that that team has on them. But I, I do fear that sometimes the pressure uh, can lead one to overthink uh, the evidence. And with Donald Trump, 
uh, we're always looking for the quote unquote smoking gun when, you know, the guy is, you know, holding, you know, the rocket launcher in his hand and, and he's not really concealing it. And we think that we have to find something that was concealed when he's, you know, been brandishing it, uh, you know, for the last five years. And so I, I do fear that there is a little bit of overthinking here uh, and um, they have the goods, so to speak. But I, I do, it, it would be, it would it'd be, I'd be misleading you that if I said I didn't understand, you know, the prosecutor's dilemma here, but I, I just happen to think uh, they're overthinking uh, just how much criming he's done, you know, in public already. You know, as a follow on to that, I, I want to ask you, because especially with your committee assignments about what's happened with the, so, uh, the Secret Service texts. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the January 6th committee has pursued that. But I haven't seen anything from the Department of Justice. And it seems to me that there are crimes involved in this and that it's something that is definitely worth looking at. What is? What do you think about I, these? I agree, Jill. And I, I come from a family uh, of law enforcement. My dad was a, a police officer. My brothers currently serve as police officers. And I worked for many years with law enforcement. And it, it is just crushing to think that people who are supposed to be, you know, objective uh, about their mission uh, may have been, you know, siding with the former president and, and neglecting the duties that they had, you know, to the office so far as that they would, you know, destroy uh, evidence. That That's very concerning. And um, you have to be concerned if, if you're President Biden, uh, you know, about the people who are protecting you or these individuals that, you know, were loyal uh, to Donald Trump. So it, you, you never, that's the last institution uh, in our country um, where you would want to see, you know, trust really erode. Um, because yeah. if you look at, you know, countries that, you know, collapse or have coups, um, many times, uh, you know, the, the, the problems come from within. And I'm not, to, I'm not saying that that's where we are right now, but uh, I think our, our faith and trust in the Secret Service has been shaken uh, by these revelations and also by uh, Carol uh, Leinig's book that's coming out uh, about the Secret Service and, and so much of what she learned. And I think she describes in her book uh, that uh, a, num- a number of the agents were rooting for Donald Trump during the insurrection. And, and that that is really concerning. It, it is a very big concern to me that we still have Ornato as the deputy of the Secret Service who served very much as Donald Trump's uh, person. Does that concern you? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and as I said, you know, the, you want the person, the people who protect the president to, to not really give uh, a rip about politics. Uh, of course, they can have personal opinions. Uh, but if, if those opinions color, you know, the actions that they're taking uh, in their official capacity, uh, then we, we don't look like America anymore. Is there a way to remove him or is he civil service again and can't be removed? Well, you know, I'm on the department, I'm on the Homeland Security Committee right. uh, and, and our chair on that committee is also Benny Thompson. So he, he has unique access to, you know, what he's seen on the January 6th commission and then just the oversight that we have to do uh, on the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm returning to Washington this week and uh, we are all on the committee at least on the Democratic side, eager to see, you know, what we can do from an oversight perspective uh, to hold these uh, agents accountable. Thank you. I, th- I think that would be terrific. I'm glad to hear that. And um, let's talk about what 
maybe Congress can do to prevent a future insurrection? Have you had any insight into what laws Congress is looking at as solutions as a result of what happened? Well, that will be an important, you know, finding from the January 6th uh, committee. And I, I think we all agree that the September 11 commission uh, was incredibly effective at putting forth recommendations that were ultimately implemented and have kept us safer and freer uh, in the skies uh, from terrorism. Uh, now here, I mean, certainly, you know, taking away from the president the ability, you know, to order up the National Guard or not order up the National Guard and, and have more, you know, I, I would say, removed, less political objective actors, you know, overseeing the security mm-hmm. of the Capitol or any federal complex. I, I think that will have to come out uh, of this. I mean, yes, uh, absolutely, you know, reforming the Electoral Count Act, uh, you know, should come out uh, of this so that no vice president is ever put in the position that Donald Trump put the vice president in. You know, we've voted uh, in Congress already to increase the security posture at the Capitol, and Republicans have voted against that, and we've not seen it passed in the House, despite, you know, the constant defund yes. the police refrain that Democrats are accused of. We want to fund the police of the Capitol. Um, and, and then the harder ones, I believe, are around disinformation. You know, the president spent millions of dollars spinning and amplifying the big lie. And he he did that on social media. And that's the harder piece because we want to be a country of free speech. Uh, But clearly there was a straight line from the president's disinformation to the violence that occurred on January 6th. Uh, And that I think is going to be the hardest but most necessary uh, to reconcile in their recommendations. Great. Before we run out of time, I have so many topics to ask you about, including guns, but I want to move first to... uh, the women's reproductive rights and the fact that the House has been successful in passing some bills. Of course, they have been stalled in the Senate. Um, And last week, you had an exchange that's worth highlighting. Um, You asked an anti-abortion activist about the 10-year-old who had received an abortion in Indiana, of which there is proof of her rape. The rapist has been arrested. Um, And... Uh, can we just talk about that exchange and what you think it says about the abortion, anti-abortion movement on the right and what can be done to counter that? Well, you know, the witness who is the CEO of Americans United uh, for Life and has been a longtime witness for the Republicans on that committee had just before I went into my questioning stated that all women would choose life. Uh, you know, in, in that other than, you know, what Planned Parenthood does, that they all want to have the pregnancies, uh, you know, if, if they get pregnant. And I did not go into that hearing intending to question her at all. Uh, as you know, you typically don't question a witness where you don't really know what answer they're going to give. <laughs> but when she said that, I immediately keyed in on, well, all women, like a 10-year-old, you think a 10-year-old would choose life? And what she said was so striking was that, if a 10-year-old were to have an abortion like this young woman did uh, from Ohio, uh, that she doesn't consider that an abortion. And it, that was just jarring because the mental gymnastics that she or verbal gymnastics she would go through to call a medical procedure something else 
because a clear recognition that the country does not want to see government mandated pregnancies for 10 year olds to just wave a wand and say, well, that's not an abortion. Fortunately, we had, um, you know, a, a pretty talented and agile witness sitting next to her uh, who laid out that, no, this was a medical abortion. And, and she actually, the witness uh, from the human rights campaign noted that the young, the 10 year old had the fact that she left Ohio to go to Indiana is because she couldn't have the abortion in Ohio. So despite what Americans United for Life right. has as a position that if it's a 10 year old, it's not an abortion. Well, then why did she have to leave her own state and cross state lines to go to Indiana? It's because it was considered an abortion. And, and sadly, we're, we're seeing more and more of these stories. I don't know if you saw Jill over the weekend in Texas, a woman was uh, miscarrying and uh, she was experiencing blood clots and she went to the emergency room, uh, didn't want to lose the baby, uh, but was miscarrying. And the doctors refused uh, to carry out the termination of pregnancy because the, the fetus still had a heartbeat. So while they waited for the fetus to lose its heartbeat, uh, the, the woman who was clotting uh, had to be put on a breathing machine because she had lost too much blood. And, and that's where we are right now is, is that, um, you know, it, it's forced pregnancies at the risk of the health of the mother uh, because this party has not just declared, you know, a war on women and wants to control women. It's extended to a war on little girls because we are seeing, sadly, through rape or incest, that little girls do get pregnant and they will now be forced to carry these pregnancies to term. And there are dangerous pregnancies and dangerous miscarriages. And so it, it's very sad to me to see all of this. And Yesterday, um, the Idaho Republican Party uh, at their convention uh, had an amendment to their uh, abortion platform. And someone tried to put in there uh, that they would have an exception for the life of the mother and it failed by 400 to about 150 votes. Whoa. Um, so that's, that's where they are uh, right now, is, is that um, it's forced government pregnancies, even if it means uh, the mother dies. Well, I do want our audience to know that the Congress, the House, has passed some bills, and there's another one um, about interstate travel that could happen soon. And yes. the Equal Rights Amendment, and that's, explains why I'm wearing today's pin, because I think it's the only solution to save not just the lives of women in reproductive freedom, but all of our rights, equal pay, everything. Um, but I'm going to give Victor the last question um, because we're going to run out of time otherwise. Sure, go ahead, Victor. Well, Joe, I'll, I'll, while we wait for Victor, we're going to vote this week on uh, Congresswoman Kathy Manning's legislation, which would uh, codify the right to contraception, which I, I think was the Griswold uh, yes. So again, we want Republicans to have to vote because the logical extension of uh, what the Supreme Court used to take away a woman's right to health care freedom uh, would also take away uh, a woman's right to contraception. And so we want to see, you know, just how far do they want to follow, you know, this ill logic uh, that was put forward. Exactly. I mean, it is. Um, I, I see the Republicans viewing me much like a puppy farm, a puppy mill, and you can't have contraception and you have to bear the child that results. And I can't believe the era that we're going back to. I don't even know how many years we're going back, but it's more than 50 and really terrible. 
since we seem to have lost Victor, I'm, I'll ask the question that he always ends our podcast with, and that is, he asks for advice for his generation. Um, as you know, the whole purpose of this uh, podcast is to cover my generation back down to his generation. And so what would you say for his generation? Well, their agency is not that they organize and register and then vote. Their agency is that they organize, they register, they vote, and then they show up to town halls or they contact their representatives because they voted. And I think we often tell young people, go vote, that's your duty. And then we expect them to just, you know, that's it, that it's, you know, two acts, register and then vote. But it's really three acts, which is register, vote, and then hold your lawmakers accountable. And, and, and I look at the gun violence issue as this generation, the Parkland generation, they put themselves out there. They had these 50 mile uh, walks after Parkland. They helped beat 18 NRA endorsed members of Congress to help us win the House. And they still have not seen, you know, background checks or an assault weapons ban signed into law. And so their agency uh, is to tell us, to tell Democrats and Republicans that these are our expectations. And our agency is that we have actually already registered and voted and we're going to keep doing that. And and so um, you have, you know, more power than you realize, but keep holding us accountable. It's working. We did just pass the most significant gun safety legislation in nearly 30 years uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we should build on that and not give up. So I'm I'm inspired by his generation uh, because they don't want to live in constant fear of gun violence. uh, And they're the generation I think that's going to continue to mobilize, organize, vote, and then hold us accountable because they did show up. That is the best answer. And I know he would have been happy to hear that. And he will hear it, of course. Uh, And we thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Guns was one of the subjects we wanted to cover, but um, didn't have time for. If you have one more second, you can tell us what are the maybe two most important things that should be added on to the significant accomplishment of passing a bipartisan gun bill. But what Yeah, well, we've already passed background checks in the House. And so it's really time for the Senate to join not just, you know, mainstream, you know, Republicans and Democrats, but mainstream gun owners, because, you know, nearly 80 percent of gun owners uh, want background checks passed. But also this week in the House, we're going to pass an assault weapons ban out of the Judiciary Committee and hopefully uh, on the full floor, probably next week, I would imagine. And again, it's just a it's 70 plus percent of Americans uh, who want to see an assault weapons ban. And we have the data. We know that from 1994 to 2004, there were fewer mass shootings when there was an assault weapons ban in place. And so there's so much more uh, that we can do. Uh, My wife grew up in Indiana and uh, the mall that she would grow up going to uh, shop at, the Greenwood Park Mall, uh, had a mass shooting yesterday where the shooter killed three people before he was killed and he had an assault rifle. And and so this touches uh, everyone. And, And I think we're at a place now where um, if you're not killed by an assault weapon, you will probably know someone who is, if we continue the pro- proliferation of assault yes. rifles in America. As you know, Victor and I are both from uh, near Highland Park. And so we 
I definitely know people who were impacted on July 4th and how horrible it is. I have to ask one last question because you mentioned the Indiana Mall. Three people were killed before a bystander with a gun, apparently 22 years old, killed the shooter. And I know I can hear it now. NRA is going to be saying, we always said it, a good guy with a gun is the only answer to a bad guy with a gun. On the other hand, let's say Uvalde had 400 armed police and they didn't take down the shooter until more than an hour later. So they had more people than defended the Alamo at Uvalde. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, if I hear that argument, Uvalde is the answer. Um, yeah. That was a horrible incident, but anyway. It's okay. such a pleasure to, to join you all. And Thank uh, I'm, you. I'm glad, Jill, that you're mentoring and helping Victor because he is the future. And He, uh, he is going to be a great future. And yeah. I don't know if you know, but he's interning at the White House this summer. Yes. So he's, he's there and having a great time. That's great. Well, good for you, Victor. And keep doing good things and keep the faith, please. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Representative Swallow. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Representative Swalwell. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcast. You can also find us on YouTube and like our video as well as hit the subscribe button and our weekly notifications every Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and we hope to see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Hey, Victor, before we stop this episode, I wanted to ask you, um, I mentioned, of course, your summer internship to Representative Swalwell, and I wanted to just have you tell everybody who's listening how your summer internship at the White House is going. So we just passed the halfway point. So there are only four more weeks left of this internship. And I can't say too much now. So we'll definitely have to do a longer recap once it's over. But it's so far been just such a surreal experience. So much of my knowledge of the White House was based off of shows like The West Wing and Designated Survivor. And so to actually be in that area is just so just surreal and unbelievable. And so it's been a wonderful experience just stepping into the grounds every day. But then also just the work has been um, pretty amazing. It's been such a worthwhile experience and um, working on a lot of different policy as well as external engagement. And then hopefully we can talk more about that once the internship ends, because I can't talk too much about it or else I'll get in uh, trouble. Apparently. Okay. And have you had any issues that you have encountered that you can talk about or any questions you've had? I think I can talk generally, although I know that there was One of the highlights of my internship so far was attending this July 4th celebration at the White House. And I remember the day before I um, called you, Jill, and asked um, any advice for networking. And I feel like that's something that we haven't really talked about on this podcast. So we can talk about it now. And just, you know, what you told me I thought was such a good thing about how to network, how to make, you know, your first impression to people. And um, I don't know, what do you have to say to our young listeners out there who might find themselves in a situation similar to mine where uh, they have to introduce themselves to people and uh, get to know people? Well, I guess I would say the same thing that I said to you, um, but I would first say how important networking is. And I can tell you that many of my jobs have been the result of networking. And networking is really just getting to know people, being willing to do favors for them and help them out, but also being willing to ask them. 
and knowing how to ask them for a favor. You don't just say, oh, I'm sort of interested in X. What can you do for me? You say, I know that you're on the board of X company. Could you introduce me to someone in the HR department? And that's all. I mean, if you ask a specific thing, people are willing to do it. But what I told you at this event, you were a little concerned about, you know, you didn't know anyone and, you know, how are you going to meet people and talk to people? And the first thing I said is people like to talk about themselves. And so if you say, hi, my name is Victor. I'm interning for the summer at the White House. And who are you and what are you doing? That gives people the knowledge that you're interested in hearing from them about them. And once that gets going, then you have things to follow up on. And you can meet a lot of interesting people. I also told you that in Washington, one of the trickiest things is a lot of people are pretty important. And you may recognize them in a general way and say, gee, I know I know that person, but you can't say who they are. And so you're torn between saying, look, I'm an idiot and I know I should know you. Who are you? And then you can have a really interesting conversation or you can have a superficial conversation without ever admitting you don't actually know who they are. And if you can, it's certainly worth saying, look, I, 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 know, I know you, but I, I just can't call it up in my mind. It's really better to have that extra conversation. So I think we can talk about this more in future episodes, but for now I would say, one, be willing to ask for help. Two, be willing to ask for specific help. So know what you want to ask. And make sure you keep up the relationships and that you are always willing to do something for that person or to think of something you could offer to do for that person. And then get people talking about themselves. People love that. Um, I think I told you about the time I met Dustin Hoffman, who was filming All the President's Men in Washington. And he ended up coming to my house for a party and charmed everyone because he was filming this film and the party was for Watergate people, both prosecutors and defense lawyers and press. He was fascinated by them. He wanted to hear about them because he wanted to get into the role. So of course, everybody loved him. And that's where I learned how important it is to ask people about themselves. Does that help? Oh, definitely. And and I can say that just based off of your, the advice that you gave me, um, I found it much easier to go up to people, introduce myself, and some of them I've seen around on the campus, and they still remember me, which I, uh, which I very much enjoy. So um, I am sure we will have many more conversations about this topic because um, it's so important. And I feel like for a lot of young people, especially, there's a hesitancy to ask for help. And if we can get into the habit of asking for help, it's not a strength. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength, actually, and to be resourceful. And so learning how to go about asking for help, I think, is a conversation that's worthwhile um, for us to have in uh, future episodes. And let's post a picture of you and President Biden, which is a result of that July 4th celebration at the White House. And you're going up to him and saying hi. So Let's put that in our show notes. And thank you all for listening. Thank you so much, everyone.